0: Hello and welcome to Inside Oxford Science, a podcast from the University of Oxford looking at some of the cutting edge science happening here in Oxford and also around the world. Uh, my name is Marcus de Sotoy and I'm a Professor for the Public Understanding of Science here in Oxford and also a Professor of Mathematics. And I'll let my other uh, fellow pod journeyers introduce themselves.
1: I'm uh, Professor Francis Ashcroft and I'm a physiologist with an interest in diabetes.
0: And I'm John Wood, I'm actually a press officer at the university, uh, often working with some of our medical science researchers here. I'm Pedro Ferreira, I'm a cosmologist here in the astrophysics department working on the the early universe.
2: I'm Tristan Wyatt, a researcher in the zoology department, and I'm interested in how evolution by chemical communication all happened. And that's the topic we're going to start with, Tristan. You're going to tell us
0: a little bit, I think, about um, the subject of pheromones, which I think is celebrating an anniversary this year.
2: Well, it's the 50th year since the word was invented. Um, Two German and Swiss scientists came up with the word in January 1959, and it caught on almost immediately. It's quite an interesting idea, because until that point, we knew about chemical communication, and the ancient Greeks knew that a dog, or rather a female dog in heat, was enormously attractive to other dogs, and that you could take something from the female dog and make anything else attractive with this secretion. But there was no word, really, to describe it, and that's what uh, Peter Carlson and Martin Lucia came up with in
0: 1959. And that is quite recent, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, 50 years ago, you think if people knew that there was the power of um, a scent. I mean, perhaps you should explain what a pheromone is. I think most people think it's some perfume that you spray on yourself to make yourself attractive to the opposite sex. And uh, Well,
2: so it- if you go onto Google, you'll find about three million hits all trying to sell you something to make yourself irresistible. So they've got the right idea in the sense that pheromones are things that are chemicals that make... Um, animals attractive to each other. So a lot of pheromones are to do with sex. But we'll come on later, I think, into the way that social insects, the ants, the bees and the wasps, use uh, pheromones. I suppose what was special about 1959 was first the word, but it wasn't by chance that that year was the year that the very first chemical identification of a pheromone was made. And this was by the Nobel Prize-winning chemist, in fact, Adolf Bündant at Munich. And it was the silk moth pheromone. And he'd been working on this with a big team for about 30 years. And finally, they came up with the chemical identification. But until that point, lots of people knew that chemicals were important, or rather, smells were important. So as soon as people had been hunting, they'd have known that their prey left scent trails. They'd have known that you could bait traps, say, like a beaver trap with the smell of a beaver, and attract other, other beavers, in this case. But nobody could actually pin it down, and so there were all sorts of fanciful ideas that it was infrared, that it was um, perhaps something to do beyond our own sound. or Nobody had pinned it down to a chemical. And so the first chemical identification was crucial to all that. And did uh, he win the Nobel Prize for that, or he was already a Nobel Prize winner? For he it? was already a Nobel Prize winner for work that he'd done on hormones. So he'd identified um, the structure of, I think, testosterone and oestrogen and it was that chemical expertise that was needed because at the time, he needed half a million silk moths because the chemistry was so crude. He needed half a million silk moths to get enough material. Half a do- million? Yeah, <laughs> and they were collected all over Germany and he was importing them from Japan. I mean, the crucial thing about silkworms is that you can breed them and so that you could get enough of those. If you imagine trying to catch enough caterpillars from, say, cabbage white moths, you'd be scouring cabbages all over the world. but. With silk moths, you can actually rear that number. And what were the pheromones being used for by this
0: moth? I mean, it's. mean, mean, scents, you you would say, if you're hunting something, then they're
2: not necessarily wanting to leave that scent behind, but this is something which is
0: used deliberately, I guess.
2: That's within the species, and that actually is part of the definition of a pheromone. Uh, A pheromone is a chemical that's released by one individual that attracts or has an influence on the behaviour or physiology of another member of that species. So in the case of the silk moth, It's the female releasing the pheromone to attract males, and the bioassay, the way that they were able to say what the uh, chemical was, was the males would get all excited and they would flutter their wings in response to the female pheromone. In the wild, what would be happening is the males would be coming towards the female and finding her in the dark.
1: If I remember correctly, um, in the case of the silk moth, it's extremely sensitive to very low concentrations (coughs) of the pheromone, so is that true of all pheromones?
2: That's a very good characteristic. They are often uh, used in very small concentrations. Just a very few molecules of the salt moth pheromone is enough to stimulate a male several hundred meters away. And that's a general characteristic. The same is true of goldfish we tend to think of um, pheromones being something in air, but in fact pheromones work just as well underwater. Really? Nice. And it was all found by accident, but it's down to picomolar concentrations of the female sex pheromone are enough to get the males really excited. In the case of goldfish, they get excited in a way the, the evening before. So when the male senses the female pheromone, he starts to produce more sperm and also more um, of the proteins and things that go with his sperm. So he's ready the next morning when she spawns to well deliver plenty of sperm.
0: So how did they, f- I mean, you're saying that they're, they really trace amounts of, of this chemical. How do people find it? How, you know, how do people know that that's the chemical they're looking for? That's the molecule they're looking for? How can you isolate it from the chemical noise around?
2: Well that's a really good question and it's the thing that makes it hard. Everything relies on a bioassay. You need the animal to tell you that it sensed it because animals with their physiological systems are usually much more sensitive than any human-made instrument. So in the case of the silk moths um, that Fran was asking about, um, the bioassay was the the wing fluttering of the male. Whatever system you're looking at, you need a response from the animal and then it's a process of elimination. You try to find the fraction or the molecules that elicit that response, whether it's behaviour or a physiological response, say like producing more sperm. Mm.
1: Do animals ever use them as decoys? I mean, this sounds like an excellent way to um, grab some unwary male and eat it.
2: Well, yes, and once you have a system that involves chemicals, in fact, any signal at all, it can be, um, I guess, either eavesdropped or in in the case of some of the uh, counterfeiting, you get animals that shouldn't be producing pheromones uh, producing them illegally. And so one of the best examples is the bolus spider. That produces perfect copies of moth pheromones. So, in this case, the moth flies up wind in the dark, thinking he's going to a female, but instead he's being lured by this spider. And when the moth gets close, she throws out uh, a bolus, which is a bit like a spider's web, all combined together into a gob of mucus. Right, yeah, it's real Spider Man <laughs> <and> stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it grabs in the moth, and she just pulls him in and eats him. So, there's li- little
0: this spider's become a little chemist sort of manufacturing something and obviously picking up that there yes. is something to to copy here and Mani- has managed to do it and then is pretending to be
2: something it isn't and it gets worse because at different times of the evening um she'll switch to producing different pheromones as the different moths change their patterns over the night
0: gosh sign them up for phds here in oxford <laughs> uh, sounds like they're very clever
2: <laughs> uh, what about um i mean what other forms of communication
0: are used uh, uh what other sort of communicating is being done by these pheromones it's not just
2: sexual or, or um, aggressive is it or no and what some of the best examples do come from the social insects and there all sorts of activities of the of the hive of bees are run by pheromones so one of the key things for social insects is they have a very rich resource that lots of other animals want so bears and humans and others are, are wanting to get the honey for example and so they've evolved a very Careful system of defence, so that if they see a mammal approaching, and the mammal starts to break into the hive, the first scout will uh, sting, and then all the other all the other bees will come out and sting the same animal. Which is one reason why, if you're ever stung by a bee, you should actually remove the sting because other bees are going to follow if you're near the hive. Mm. Also, uh, in ants, the uh, all the uh, trail following is organised by pheromones in the majority of species. So the scout ants will be going out over the landscape, and when they find a good source of food, when they go back to the nest, they leave a trail, which is then followed by a successive ant. And each ant that goes out reinforces the trail. Oh, that's very interesting. So, they I mean, you sort of think, how are these
0: ants able to communicate across such a large expanse? And, and this... What form of communication is this
2: chemical one? Though? Indeed, and lots of people here in Oxford and other places have uh, mathematically modelled the trail following, and they do a very good job. They're, they're pretty well perfect. So what, what are the
0: sort of cutting-edge problems um, with pheromones at the moment? I mean, what, what people don't understand?
2: Well, it's still really hard to um, say what the pheromones in humans are. Um, we've got a few examples of where the physiology indicates that something is going on. So the best example is menstrual synchrony. So if women are living in close proximity, their menstrual cycles uh, seem to uh, synchronise, they seem to coincide after they've been living together for a while. It actually does cause a bit of a a problem with the statistics, because it's circular statistics. And the big problem is that no woman's cycle in different cycles, I think, is the same. And lots of women, in any case, differ. And so it's a hard thing to say that the cycles have synchronised, but nonetheless, The phenomenon does seem to occur and there was some nice work by Martha McClintock and one of her students which showed in 1998 that you could take um, the underarm secretions from one woman, put them on the upper lip of another woman and affect the second woman's cycle. But that was ten years ago and still there's nothing been published on what the molecules are that have that effect. The same goes for all sorts of other human effects which might be going on but we simply don't know. And one of the problems here is bioassays are difficult. Um, We don't flutter our wings. There's nothing simple about human behaviour. You have to do everything double-blind, where the experimenters don't know and the subjects don't know. And the other problem is that if you're working on mammals, the number of potential compounds pinning down which molecule it is, is really hard. If you take a swab from the underarm of any human in the room, you'd find that there's basically a forest of compounds if you separate them out on the GC so that each peak is a single compound. There's basically a forest of peaks. And it won't be the biggest peaks that are necessarily are the actual pheromone. Added to that problem is what we do know, and they didn't know in 1959, is that pheromones are often a combination of molecules. So you're not just looking for one molecule, you're looking for a particular combination of molecules in minute concentrations, as Fran was saying and they're working in combination. And unless you have the right combination with the chemistry exactly right, with the right chirality, the right handedness and so forth, you won't get the effect you're looking for. And so it does make it really difficult. The disappointing thing for me though, is simply that there really isn't the serious work that we have in moths and mice happening in humans and I'm not sure why. For some reason it's very sexy on the internet. It just doesn't seem to be sexy for the funding agencies.
0: Well, but but commercially it must be, you know, possibly very big money. So isn't there a lot of money coming in from commercial organisations wanting to understand this?
2: There's a little bit. And in fact, you can buy special deodorants um, for men that are good at masking the odours that women find um, particularly disgusting. So um, <laughs> so there's, there's a little bit of work going on. But
0: that's with who, um, <laughs> who said, who said who science wasn't <laughs> useful? <laughs> yes, indeed.
1: So if I remember, isn't there something about there are some fish which change their sex under particular conditions? So did they switch all the pheromones and things that they start producing at that time?
2: Now, that's a fabulous question. I don't know the answer, but the answer must be yes. Yes. Because... All the things to do with hormones that drive pheromones are going to switch at the same time. So I would expect that. And actually, you've set me a question that's going to keep me going for the next week, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's good.
0: (laughs) And what about, um, uh, I mean, pheromones is a mean of of communication. And so therefore, is there some sort of grammar that these, I mean, are people using these chemicals in an interesting grammatical way? Or is it just generally a signifier for something? Uh, Is it quite a complex form of communication?
2: It's certainly a complex form of communication. I don't think it gets anywhere near language. So the place we'd look is the social insects, and they are communicating a very wide range of quite complicated things, but it's not as units that add together to make a message. It seems that a particular message is given by a combination, but you can't take the individual elements and say, um, water, bird, to signify duck, as uh, in some of the famous chimp experiments. So I think it's it's definitely complex, but it doesn't form a language in the technical sense.
0: And, and plants as well, are they involved in this kind Plant, of game? Or?
2: Plants do seem to use some chemical communication. There was a wonderful idea of talking trees, but it hasn't gone as far as we'd expect. What has proved very interesting indeed is the way that the messages that plants give off. now there's still a debate about whether these are evolved signals, but when they're eaten by a particular caterpillar, there's something in the caterpillar spit that interacts with the plant molecules that gives off a particular smell that attracts parasitoids, these wasps that will lay their eggs in the, in the caterpillars and basically kill them. And it does seem to be a smell that's related to which caterpillar is eating which plant. And so there's a whole story of these tritrophic trophic uh, communication between the plant, The caterpillar and the parasitoids and predators and that really does seem to be quite a phenomenon.
0: What's the real advantage of using a a chemical signal to communicate over like a sound or or something visual? Is it that you can be so specific about the species that you're communicating with whether it's your own or a different one?
2: I think that is an important advantage. Sometimes it's about um, being able to communicate at night so um, pheromones work uh, without light of course. Sometimes it's about distance, that pheromones are good for long-distance communication. Sometimes it's about longevity. You can get a very long-lasting signal. So signals evolve to, to match the thing they're signaling. So alarm pheromones in ants or bees are very volatile, short-lived molecules that will disperse rapidly because it wouldn't work if you were alarmed all the time, a bit like sort of ants in Woody Allen. <laughs> um, so you, you want to be calm most of the time. But if you're marking a territory, a big advantage of pheromones is that you can evolve a pheromone which is very long-lasting, that takes a long time to evaporate. And so if you're a hyena that will only come round to the territory every now and once and again, then you can have a a signal that signals for for three or four weeks.
1: What about things in lower organisms, things like slime moulds and uh, bacteria? Do they count as pheromones? I know they secrete chemical attractants, but are they pheromones or are they considered to be something different?
2: Um, I think we should include them and they're all the quorum sensing uh, pheromones in bacteria, so getting uh, responses depending on how many are in the population that are, may actually be a very important way of intervening in disease and um, somebody called Professor Stu West has recently joined Oxford and he's brought a whole area of expertise in that area.
0: Well that's wonderful Tristan, when you have developed a pheromone for attracting people to the Oxford Science Podcast of course we'll be very interested in uh, marketing that and sending it out. Um, But now we're going to turn to um, a disease, in fact, to diabetes, which obviously has been important for very many people. And uh, Fran, you've made some big progress uh, over the last few years on understanding how diabetes works. Could you explain to us a little bit about what diabetes is and what the problem is?
1: Well, diabetes is when you don't have enough of the hormone insulin for your body's needs. So it's very important that the level of sugar in your blood is controlled within rather narrow limits. If you don't have enough, you will collapse within a few minutes and die because the cells in your brain have nothing to feed on. But if you have too much over a long period, what then happens is all sorts of horrible complications such as blindness and and kidney disease. So the body has evolved mechanisms to keep the blood sugar level within narrow limits. And insulin is really important because what it does is lowers the blood sugar concentration. So after you've had a few chocolate biscuits, your insulin levels will be raised, they will be secreted from the insulin producing cells in the pancreas and then that will bring the blood sugar back to normal. Now if you have diabetes you don't have enough insulin to do that so your blood sugar level rises and what we've been trying to understand over the last 20 years or so is how glucose stimulates the cells in the pancreas to release insulin and that's one of the things that goes wrong in diabetes, we know that now, that the insulin secretion mechanisms can fail.
0: And, and is that a failure due to something, that, uh, a disease, or to... Um, I mean, how, how, how does that failure happen? Well, or do we not in, understand? If,
1: really? if we just consider the sort of type 2 diabetes, which is the most common form of the disease and which is currently undergoing a worldwide epidemic, mm-hmm. it seems that there are two things which are involved. One is how much insulin is released by the cells in the pancreas, and the second thing is how much the body actually needs. And if you become obese, you require more insulin, and so that's one of the reasons why we're having an epidemic of diabetes. It's because we're all getting larger. Right. And now there's type two. So type two, that's so is, type two what, what is it, diabetes is that,
0: that a thing occurring in sort of?
1: That happens
0: during your life the
1: classic way to say this is that this is something which develops with age and people who are genetically predisposed towards it will get it as they become older usually over the age of about 50 and their chance of getting it is much exacerbated if they become obese mm. which is why any doctor will tell you eat less run more <laughs> no. but we have been working on a very specific type of diabetes which is incredibly rare and which actually um, People develop at birth.
0: Right, because you said ge- genetically predisposed, this, so it is this, a genetic this thing. This is
1: a genetic disease. This is caused by a mutation in a very specific protein that we've been working on for many years and which actually is involved in the secretion of insulin. And what happens is, if you think about any cell in your body, it's got a membrane around it which acts as a barrier between the inside world and the outside environment but things have to get in and out across this membrane and the way they do this is through little pores in the membrane which can open and close and we've been looking at one of these very specific types of pores and what we know is when it's open insulin is not secreted and when it shuts insulin is secreted so when blood sugar levels are low this thing is open insulin is not secreted when your blood sugar levels goes up it causes this um port shut and so insulin is released. The mutations cause the pore to be open all the time regardless of the uh, glucose concentration. And so the patient has diabetes and they have it right from birth. And now this is a
0: new discovery, isn't this, it? Because that people this, wasn't
1: a, uh, Yes, this is a sort of new discovery. We've been working on this protein for years and we actually thought it might be involved in common type 2 diabetes, the sort you get in later life. And indeed, it probably does play a very small role. But at the time when we discovered it and when we first got cloned it, you know, when we got the DNA, when we found the gene, we thought that we should go and look at diabetic patients who were born with diabetes. And we asked the clinicians, and they said this never happens. Uh-huh. But my friend Andrew Hattersley in uh, Exeter knew better. And over the years, he made a collection of these people who are born with diabetes. And then he tested their genes to see if they had mutations in our particular protein. And it turned out they did. And this was enormously exciting Uh, not only for scientific reasons, but also for clinical reasons, because people who were born with diabetes were thought at that time to have a very rare form of type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is a childhood disease in which children develop diabetes at around the age of 12 or, you know, 7 to 18 or so. And, And what happens is, they have an autoimmune attack, an attack mounted by the body's own defence mechanisms, which kills off their beta cells. So they have to have insulin injections all their lives. So these people who had the mutations that I've been talking about were treated with insulin injections at birth. The problem is that insulin injections have to be given several times a day. And it's even more of a problem in babies because their blood sugar levels, even on insulin injections, are sometimes not particularly well controlled and they tend to fluctuate. But what we knew from our work from many years ago is that there is a particular drug called sulfonylureas which bind to the protein and cause the open channels to shut. So we could use this drug in the babies and in the young children. So they no longer have to have insulin injections. They have all more than 400 of them, have now changed their therapy. And it's had a fantastic effect on their ability to do things because their parents then allow them to go and stay overnight with their friends, to play football, which is, of course, interesting for you, and to do all sorts <laughs> yeah. of other things which formerly they weren't allowed to do.
0: Really? So that's, uh, do you have any particular stories of people that you know um, who, who have been transformed by this pill?
1: Well what happens is that the kids say things like i feel normal which is quite nice and then of course i mean i mean there are other stories as well some people who have these mutations have very severe forms of the disease they don't just have diabetes because this uh, protein is found also in the brain and in muscle cells they have muscle weakness they have epilepsy they have learning developmental delays so They may be as old as five or six. They're still not walking or talking. When you put them on the drug, then they start to get better. They never completely recover, but they get much, much better. So a classic example is um, a little boy who was two years old and he was unable to walk. He could just, because he had weak muscles, he couldn't even crawl because he couldn't push himself up on his hands and knees. And after he had been put on the drug, he started to walk within a month. And then someone wrote about this in the Daily Telegraph, and a mother read the story, and she uh, got in touch with the clinicians, her clinicians, who then transferred her child to self and, allureas, and within, and so he was five years old, he just started to walk, but he still didn't talk. And within three weeks, he said his first three words, and I think even more important for the mother, um, a few days later, he came home from school, and he said, hello, mummy. Well that's
0: an amazing story I mean so
1: uh, it's, it's fortunate I think because um, it's it's obviously good for the patients but for the scientist it's an absolute extraordinary thing to happen because you never imagine that anything you do will have an effect in your own lifetime on patients yeah. so and, had uh, had, it the has drug, done.
2: had the drug already been tested for something else
1: oh yes this is a marvelous thing so these drugs were discovered 50 years ago and they were used to treat type 2 diabetes for 50 years, and they are effective in type 2 diabetics in adult patients. Um, So it was possible, since it had been trialled for many years, to take them directly and test them straight in human patients. There was no need to develop a new drug. But in fact, there's a very interesting story about how these sulfonylureas were discovered, and it turns out that just after the Second World War, there were a lot of German chemists who were developing colour dyes, the aniline dyes, right. and they discovered that some of these aniline dyes were very effective antibacterial agents, and so they could be used to treat things like typhoid and so on. And down in the south of France, there were a group of physiologists who had, a group of clinicians in fact, who had been given some of, some related drugs, not exactly the same, And they had six patients who were dying of typhoid fever, and they thought, well, these guys are going to die anyway, let's test this new drug. There were no animal experiments in those days, so they just tried it out in the human patients, and they all died within a few hours. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a huge disaster, and it does explain why animal testing is a good idea. But um, so the next thing they did was they, they tried these drugs on six dogs, and the dogs all died too. And they they had taken the precaution of doing some tests on the dogs. And one of the things they measured was their blood sugar levels, and they realised that the blood sugar had dropped through the floor, which is why the the dogs and the human patients had died. And they discovered that this was because insulin had been secreted in very large amounts. And so they realised, they had the brilliant idea that if this stimulated insulin secretion, it might be a good therapy for people with diabetes. And that's what turned out to be the case.
0: Now it's interesting you said that uh, in your lifetime you wouldn't expect as a practicing scientist um, to have you know such a dramatic effect. And so is this a point, a really good example of how you know we do our pure science and we don't have necessarily goals ahead of us, but unexpected things happen. I mean, you you weren't trying to solve or find this new sort of diabetes. Um, obviously, you weren't trying to understand diabetes. But well, um,
1: I think the thing to say is that as a scientist, you usually do it because. You're just so excited about finding things out. I mean I think of scientists as the new discoverers. There we are. We standing on this kind of intellectual peak in Darien, looking out over the landscape in front of us, but it isn't a physical one, it's a it's a mental one. And you can see where you're going and the and it's so exciting. There's nothing as exciting as finding out something new.
0: Absolutely. I remember meeting you a few years ago, I think when you were on the verge of making this discovery. So I'm, I'm so excited that we, I've just made this big breakthrough. You could see the, the buzz in your eyes and, uh, and it's still there. Well, <laughs> and the,
1: the one thing that you should remember is that this is not something that any per, one person does alone. This is massive teamwork with lots of people in many different groups and throughout the world. This would not have happened without... Lots and lots of people, including my good friend in Exeter. But I do think science is... You you do science because it's exciting and the excitement carries you through all the huge, huge amount of time when everything is going wrong and nothing is working, which is so dreadful and and difficult. Yes, Um, But I think as somebody who works in a medical area, you always have this kind of distant hope that actually what you're going to do is find out something which will ultimately be of uh, medical benefit, even though you don't imagine that you'll be lucky enough to see it in your own lifetime.
0: But this was quite surprising as well. I mean, I think you, you weren't I th- expecting, I <clears throat> guess, to find so many... I mean, what is the number well, of people who have... that's not actually true, no, yeah? no. No,
1: that is not true. I knew when I first found this channel... I mean, that was the thing that was in my head 25 years ago when I found the channel... And could see its activity at eight o'clock at night when everybody else had gone home, and I saw this thing happen. I thought, you know, this might be the target for the sulfonylurea drugs. This might actually go wrong in diabetes. I thought at the time, type two diabetes. We might be able to find out more. You know, I had those sort of mad ideas back then. Everyone does, it's just they don't always turn out to be right. And I think one of the things which is really important uh, for people to realise is that there's a lot of hype in the media at the moment about translational research, about doing research which will immediately translate into the clinic. I would like to emphasise that that is not a short-term goal, Mm. it takes forever. It took us 25 years, and if you consider that the drug had already been developed 50 years ago, this is something which it would take even longer if we had to develop the drug in, from scratch. So, so it's a long-term goal.
0: And what, what are the big problems out there that you're well, now, now trying to tackle?
1: Well, there are still quite a lot of problems that we're trying to tackle and the one that we're trying to tackle which is related to patients with this disease is why they have the brain problems and the nerve and muscle problems. We really want to know that. Um, And then the second thing of course, which is the big open question, is what on earth is going on in type 2 diabetes? We know that it's not a single gene that's involved, we know it's multiple genes and each of them has a small effect. And so that's going to keep us busy for many, many more years.
0: Well, thank you very much, Fran. That was uh, fascinating. And that's uh, all we've got time for on this podcast. So I'd just like to thank Tristan, Fran, Pedro and John. And I hope you can join us next time for Inside Oxford Science.